So today we're going to talk about grace. Um, it's not an exaggeration to say that grace is the most crucial truth of Christianity. It's the truth which sets Christianity apart from every other religion. If we don't understand grace, then we don't really understand Jesus. So what do I mean when I say grace, just before we kick off? When I use the word grace, I mean that God is kind to us, merciful to us, forgiving of us, compassionate towards us, even though we don't deserve it. Even though justice demands one outcome, we somehow end up with another. It sounds really simple when I put it like that, and yet this truth is the truth that most Christians spend their entire lives grappling with. The problem of evil is trivial compared to the problem of grace. The difficulty of evangelism, of telling other people about God's goodness, is dwarfed by the difficulty of understanding God's love for us. You know, some days it feels like we get it, and some days it feels like we don't. Sometimes we might be overwhelmed by God's beauty, and other days we might just feel numb. I know for me, this has been the hardest sermon to ever preach to myself, because I know it's the one that I need to hear the most. So I'm not standing at the front today saying to you, I have all the answers, and I'm going to tell you how to understand grace. Really, we're all pilgrims today. We're all on the same journey. So I hope you'll join me in exploring the heart of God's grace. So let's read today's passage. It's very short. It's one, uh, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Um, I encourage you after this, go and read the rest of Colossians. It's my favorite book, if you're allowed Favorite books in the Bible? Probably not. Once, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope of the gospel... Today we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about our lives without the grace of God. We're going to talk about the awesome implications of God's grace to us. And finally, we're going to talk about what our lives look like when we really understand the gospel of grace. So firstly, I want to convince you that we're in desperate trouble without God's grace. Now, Keep in mind, as I say this, I'm talking about life outside God's grace. And the truth is that Jesus changes everything that I'm about to say. But if we really want to understand grace, we must understand what life is like without grace. If we want to be in awe of grace, then we have to understand what it means. Oops. So the question at the heart of this is simple. Why does it matter that God is kind to us or not? Why does it matter if we need his kindness? Well, either we're in God's good good books, kind of pure like platinum, in which case we don't need grace at all. Or on the other hand, we might not be in God's good books, constantly corroding like copper, in which case we're definitely in need of God's grace. That... The idea that we're essentially moral as human beings is a really attractive one, but the question is, is it true? 
Well, the Bible paints a very different view. Just this verse alone says that through our sinful actions, we've alienated ourselves from God and become his enemies. You know, the reality is that whenever we choose to disobey God, we've chosen to put distance between him and us. That's actually what our conscience is telling us. Even if you don't believe in God, that feeling that you have is you shouting at yourself, telling you to leave your sinful past and follow God instead. When we break God's moral law for any reason, we're placing ourselves in opposition to the highest moral authority in the universe. You know, if we think that we're good enough to not fall foul of God's judgment, then consider the standard that Jesus set on the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this perfection isn't just in our actions, as if in our actions we could be perfect. No, it's more than that. It's also in our thoughts. Jesus says that anyone who thinks a lustful thought is an adulterer. Anyone who is angry is a murderer. I won't get you to put your hands up, but I am an adulterer and a murderer, as I stand before you here today in those terms. By this standard, we've all fallen very short of God's perfect and just standards. We may wish that God require less of us, but what kind of God doesn't care about justice? What kind of God doesn't care about righteousness? What kind of God doesn't care about sin? You know, in the Psalms, it says that sin is like a stench under God's nose. Really strong words. His reaction to our sin is the reaction that we would have if we were standing in the center of a putrid rubbish dump. It makes him sick. Maybe that sounds extreme, but actually part of the problem is that we don't see our sin the way that God sees our sin. It's not just our active rebellion, though, that smells putrid to God. It's even our good works. The book of Isaiah says that even our best works are like filthy rags. You know, the word filthy there is much more evocative. It means literally covered in bodily fluids. You know, utterly rank and disgusting. Because even our best works are stained and marked by the sin in our lives. You know, we can sometimes see ourselves as quite clean. I certainly do. But if we turn a black light on our sin, even our good works, the stains quickly become apparent. It's only invisible to us because we don't see with God's eyes and we don't smell with God's nose. And the consequences are terrible. We are alienated from God. We are enemies of God. What does that even mean? What does it mean to say that we're alienated from God? Well, we need to understand that we were not meant to be apart from God. God made us to be his friends. God made us to be his children. So for us to be alienated from God means that our friendship with God has been cut off. Our connection with him has been severed. And this is nothing short of a disaster. If we really understand that God is the source of all that is good and pure in the world, it's like being alienated from food or water. But the consequence is not physical death. It's spiritual death. Without God, we are destined for a lonely, cursed eternity. An unbearable mockery of life, completely without his goodness and pleasure. 
If that sounds like our alienation is a tragic accident, then that isn't even the whole story, because the truth is, if that were the case, we might yet have a hope that God would one day find us and bring us back, but instead, it is us who choose to get lost. We're the ones who willfully and deliberately walk away from him. Even that doesn't really go far enough, because today's passage says that we are enemies in our minds. We've actively rejected God and resist his attempts to call us home. We don't even want to come back. It says in Romans that no one seeks God, not even one. So we find ourselves in truly desperate circumstances. We're alienated from and enemies of the just judge of the universe. In essence, we are traitors to the sovereign ruler of all creation. We should think of ourselves as Guy Fawkes plotting to blow up Parliament and the King. We've committed a crime against the state. Even if we wanted to be forgiven, it's the state that we have sinned against that can forgive us. I hope I've depressed you sufficiently. It's in these blackest and most hopeless of circumstances that a rescuer steps in. But who is that rescuer? We're enemies of God, alienated, stinking to high heaven of sin, railing against the ultimate just judge. Who on earth can rescue us? Certainly not God himself. And yet, it is the very sovereign king who we offend, who chooses to save us. If that were all I were about to tell you today, that would be so unbelievably outrageous and scandalous as to beggar belief. But we are going to see this morning, by the time we're done, that God has gone so much further than that for you. You know, by further, I mean to say this. It's not only that God is the architect of our rescue, but that he actually steps in and completes the rescue mission himself. Today's passage puts it this way. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. That means that everything that we had coming to us, all of the justice that we deserved, the reeking stench of our sin, the ingrained stain of our rebellion were paid for in the body of Jesus Christ when he died on a cross for you. Though it is we who alienated ourselves from God, it is God himself in Jesus Christ who bears the full brunt of our alienation. Though it is we who set ourselves up as enemies of God, it is Jesus who pays the price for our enmity. All of our sinful thoughts, all of our malicious words, our despicable deeds, and yes, even the good works that we were once proud of. It is Jesus in his body, his physical body, who pays with his life to soak up the justice and wrath of God. We should be shocked by this. Don't mistake me for saying, though, that God the Father was angry at our sin, and then the merciful Son jumped on a grenade for us. Not at all. The nauseating aroma of our sin stunk just as much to the Son. We rebelled against the Son. We rejected the Son. We made the Son our enemy. 
We were alienated from him, and yet it is him when we have put ourselves beyond all hope and all help. That is when the Son stepped in to rescue you. Not because we had anything to recommend ourselves. Not because we were worth saving. Not because we would serve him well one day, but purely because God's love for you is so extreme. So fantastic, so wonderful, that despite the fact that we have nothing to recommend ourselves to him, had put ourselves at odds with him, he steps down from heaven and chooses to rescue us from ourselves. God's grace is simply unbelievable. It was in that terrible, hopeless place that God swapped his only son for you. There are no earthly terms in which that swap looks like a good choice. And yet that is exactly how far God goes for you. The Father sends his perfect, sinless, glorious Son to be rejected by the world, to be beaten, humiliated, and crucified for you. The Father traded the thing that was most precious to him, his precious, sinless Son, for you, for your sake. And in this way, God turns the common and the unworthy into the precious and the priceless. He turns enemies into friends and death into life. If we were just to look at the consequences in this verse, we could nearly be fooled into thinking that the outcome of Jesus' death for us is merely that our relationship with God is fixed. Simply that you were picked out from the crowd by God. Only that you were cleaned up and just that you get a reprieve from judgment. Now all of those things are true, unbelievable and inexplicable outcomes for the enemies of God. And yet, compared to the thing what Christ really does, the depth of what Christ does for you, those things pale into comparison. What really happens is a paradigm shift. When we read that we are reconciled to God, it doesn't just mean that we're no longer enemies. Don't imagine like a couple having an argument and then going silently to bed and waking up in the morning and pretending that nothing had happened. No, God doesn't just take us off his hit list. Instead, he invites us to be his best friends, his children, his family. If you were an enemy of God before, you are as close as a son You can no longer be an enemy of God if you have been saved by Jesus. In Christ, you are incapable, in fact, of alienating yourself from God again. All of that enmity and alienation was paid for by Jesus. You are now irrevocably his friend as you were once desperately his enemy. You were once, uh, you are now as unchangeably close as you were hopelessly far. The whole scale has been broken forever. You are no longer on a performance treadmill. You don't need to continually fight to be, avoid being rejected by God and continually strive to earn his favor. That is all 
paid for and done on the cross. But you are more than a friend of God. You are holy. You are holy in his sight. Now, when we talk about holiness, we often make the mistake of thinking that holiness means good, but it doesn't. When God makes us holy, it doesn't mean that he turns our good works into bad works into good ones. It means that he sets us apart. But set apart for what? Well, the Old Testament is full of examples. The first, the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day which is set apart for God, dedicated completely and wholly to worshipping him. And then you've got the sacred objects in the temple, set apart, dedicated to serve God alone. Being holy isn't about being good. Being holy is about being devoted and dedicated to God. You are now as holy, precious, and sacred to God as any object in that temple. You are now a special and sacred possession of God's treasured artifacts. It's far greater than any concept of good or bad. What a turnaround! From the, stick, the sickening stench of sin, because of Jesus, you're like a fragrant incense offering in the temple of God for his pleasure. There's more. On top of being a friend of God and being set apart for God, you are without blemish. The gospel of grace is more than just the cleanup. When Jesus died on a cross, he paid for the corrosive power of sin. It's not just that you're free from blemish this morning. It's that you are free from being blemished anymore. When God says you're clean, you are really, really, really clean. Not just in some superficial and temporary way, but permanently and perfectly clean. When God sees you, he sees his son. Perfect, beautifully obedient and utterly pure. But let's go further. You're free from accusation. And I'm not just saying you're free from God keeping account and catching you out for your sins. If you follow Jesus, your whole, you are free entirely from the idea of accusation. Not just that you don't feel guilty anymore, but that guilt has no meaning for you anymore. Guilt is a foreign language to you. The entire scaffolding of condemnation, of accusation, of guilt, of shame has been smashed irreparably, irrevocably by Christ's death on a cross for you. If you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, then your old life cannot lay a glove on you anymore. You are free. Your failure has no power over you anymore. Your past for once and all is in your past. Let me summarize. Because Jesus died on a cross for you, for your sin, in your place, the paradigm has changed. Because of Jesus, you're no longer laboring under even the categories of sin and disgrace, let alone the accusation. You're not bound by law and failure in Christ. You are not merely free from blemish, but unblemishable. Not simply free from guilt, but uncondemnable and unaccusable forever. 
This is the outrageous and awesome truth of God's grace for you. So what? So what? It's probably the most important question in all of history. So what? If the God who should judge you has saved you. So what? If the most extraordinary exchange in all of history has happened. So what if God swaps his most precious son to make you precious? The gospel of grace demands a response. It's too scandalous. What I've said is too ridiculous and fantastical for a half-hearted response. It's an all-or-nothing response this morning. If we really understand what we've been talking about today, there's no way that we can go back to our old way of life. And yet it's tempting to do exactly that. Some of us are doing it right now. I have wasted more of my life than I care to admit on that mistake. It's tempting to try and earn back a little bit of God's grace to you, or to strike a bargain with sin and compromise with your old life. But the reality is, we can do none of those things. If we've truly and deeply understood both our terrible position without God and the extraordinary love that he shows by saving us in the physical body of his son, Jesus Christ, When we get the majesty of grace, it changes everything. It changes the way that you look at the world. It changes the way that we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see other Christians. It changes the way that we see people who aren't Christians. The awesome gospel of grace must radically recast everything in our lives in light of God's kindness. Money sex, power, popularity, success, family, whatever it was that held your attention before the gospel of grace, it must now all be dwarfed into insignificance compared to the understanding and the experience of God's goodness to you. If it isn't, we haven't got it. Grace changes the way we see ourselves and our rights and our resources. For a start, if we really understand how God saved us, then we must be humble. You know, sometimes it seems to me, looking at my own life, that I'm hardwired to be selfish. It's easier to block out the God-given dignity of others and assert my own priorities than to give of myself the way that God gave for me. But how on earth can we sustain such a position in light of God's kindness? If God will go so far for us, we must do the same. Truly understanding God's love means no longer putting ourselves first. We can be radically generous and other-centered in our lives. We can be happy when people are promoted above us to serve others even when we are suffering. We can even impoverish ourselves so that others might be enriched. And think nothing of it because of love, just as Jesus Christ did for us. The early church was so devoted to these things that no one was in need. Do we see the needs of others and prefer our own? 
We've not understood the gospel, friends. When we live like that, we have not understood the gospel. In this command, God walks the walk. He gives everything for you. How can we do otherwise? You know, the ultimate act of love is um, that we can even take part in and share the good news of God's grace with others. Even if it might cost you your job, your family, or your friends, really loving people the way that God loves you might mean losing everything. It might mean being uncomfortable, or being lonely, or being homeless, or being tortured, or being killed, as many Christians are around the world, even as I speak. Even as shocking as those things may sound, the central question is only one. Is it worth it? If we have truly understood the gospel of grace, there is only one answer to the question, and that is yes, it is worth it. There was no length to which God would not go for your sake. He lost everything. He was uncomfortable. He was homeless. He was tortured, and he was killed. How now will we go less far For the sake of those who don't know God, that's the truth of God's great commission. He's not asking us to do something he hasn't already sacrificed everything for. God is inviting you today to be like him, to partner with him, to join up with him, and to give everything for him. Until all of your friends and all of your enemies and all of your family, and all of your colleagues, and all of the world know the same grace that Christ has given to you. It's God's radical generosity to us that drives our generosity to the world. Once we've seen it for real, up close, we can't be unchanged. We can't unsee it. If we understand grace then it must change the way that we see the world. If God has loved us when we were so unlovable, how can we claim to understand that love and then not also love the unlovable? If God's love for us doesn't move us to love others, we haven't experienced it. The world tells you to hate and discount people who are different from you, but God's love is radical enough to include and change anyone. The transgender person who can't find a loving community. The gay couple that has been thrown out of a church down the road. The woman who has had more abortions than she can count. The violent drug addict and the greedy banker. If our understanding of God's love and justice isn't big enough to fit these people, and worse, then we haven't understood how big God's love is. If there's a person in the world that we simply cannot love, then we do not know the love of God, which is enough for the lowest of the low, the most despised, the most rejected, the most outcast. God's love is big enough for them. Our love must be too. We cannot sit idly by. And how long should we continue with this love? What about when people disappoint us, let us down, reject and hate us? How long should we put up with a world that rejects us? Well, how long did God put up with us? 
He put up with us for our entire lives. For the entire history of humanity, he's been patient and compassionate with us. When we feel that we are at breaking point with other people, we need to realize that God forced himself past breaking point and was broken for the sake of those people. He was broken for us. So when our friends and family ridicule and reject us and our neighbours complain against us and our family in Christ let us down, we must see that God endured our unfaithfulness to the point that it killed him. As long as we draw breath in the grace of God, we must carry on. We are compelled to love by his love. We are compelled to give by his generosity. We are compelled to serve by his humility. And we are compelled to prefer others as he preferred us. In his grace, we must endure. We won't always succeed. But the difference between someone who understands the implications of God's grace and the one who doesn't is a life lived relentlessly in pursuit of loving others. Because when we really get it, there's no other choice. Lord knows I know how impossible what I've just said to you feels. I only need look back at my own long and varied track record of rebellion and failure to know how difficult it is. But take heart with me this morning. All things are possible with God. God is strong in our weakness. If you follow Jesus, if you abide in him, then there is no one more committed to loving you and changing you and picking you up when you fail than him. When you fail, he will always be there to pick you up. His righteousness to you as a gift will never fail. Only don't lose heart this morning. We mustn't go back to our old paths of sin and self-righteousness. Instead, we must continue in the faith. It's so crucially important that we get the meaning of these verses today. It doesn't mean continue being good. It doesn't mean continue with your devotional life. It doesn't mean ignore the seriousness of your sin. There is only one thing that we are commanded in this verse. Continue in the faith that saved you. That faith, real faith, is the faith that lays down all and any claim that we have to save ourselves, to be in control of our lives and to marshal our own resources, but instead puts all of its eggs in the one basket, the physical body of Jesus, his death on a cross for you. Continuing in the faith is the only work of following Jesus. But continuing in the faith is not passive. We must actively fight against the toxic influence of self-righteousness and self-determination to, de- to remain in him. We must do it every day, every hour, every moment his grace must sustain us. If you follow Christ, this is not like taking a vitamin pill to make sure that you'll be able to run the half marathon later today. This is like being on dialysis. This is life. This is his blood in our veins. Now, I'm not saying that your salvation is precarious like a dialysis victim, but once we get how perfect Christ is, how all-encompassing his compassion is for you, it just changes our understanding of our deepest need, which is grace and grace alone. Nothing else matters. Don't move from the hope in the gospel. 
Be established and firm. The whole world and your old sinful nature is trying to drag you away from that solid ground. It's easy to be fooled into thinking that the devil... Sorry, pardon me. It's easy to be fooled in thinking that the devil and the world are trying to get you to sin. But the truth is that their work is much more subtle and corrosive. They are trying to get you to trust in something other than Jesus. To hope in money, to seek comfort in television, to love, find love in pornography or security in your own goodness. If we abandon hope in Christ, then we have abandoned hope. But it's more than that. They're trying to get you to, to go to someone else when you're in need. What we heard before I started preaching. Listen to what God's saying to us this morning. He's saying, come to me. Come to me with all of your problems. Come to me when you have nothing left, when you're wounded and empty. Come to me. I'm here with all of your problems. Speak to me. I'm here. I'm listening to you. That's what God's saying to you this morning. It's the, the, the devil and the world are not trying to get you to suffer. They're trying to get you, when you suffer, to not trust in God and God alone. To not come to God and God alone. We must not let them win. Christ is our only way. He is our remedy. But our remedy is not to try harder. When we are exhausted, it's not to push on. When we are broken by the suffering of the world, it's not just to cling on and hope that tomorrow will be a better day. The only way to be free, to be clean, to be made whole, to be born up when you're tired, is to be covered from head to toe in the perfume of God's grace. I wonder if the band could come up.